Really all of chapter 17 I've called the prayer of Jesus. And this beginning part is his prayer for his glory. This is a prayer that Jesus actually prayed. Probably not all of it, but enough of it. And here we get a glimpse into his prayer. So mentioned last week, Jesus would often get away to pray. Now you can imagine how busy Jesus might have been, particularly as his ministry progressed and people became aware of him. Everybody came out. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to see him. They wanted to witness. He would often send them away, try to get away, get in a boat even to cross a lake to avoid these huge throngs of people. In addition to that, Jesus was surrounded by an inner circle of 12. And I can imagine, given their circumstances, which is understandable, that they would press on him quite a bit, asking questions all the time, seeking answers all the time, a dozen of them surrounded. And so it is no strange thing that Jesus then would often get away and pray. Luke records that he would get away in desolate places. And perhaps you remember some of that. He would even take his disciples with him, of course, because they wanted to be around him. And then he said, well, you wait right here and I'll go off to pray. That was a common thing that he did. It isn't that this desolate place was all that great to pray. It was just that he was attempting to get alone to pray for the Father. And as a aside here, I might mention that you may have to be creative in your own life to do the same kinds of things. And since this is Mother's Day, I'll, I'll mention an illustration of a godly woman who was very creative. I, I don't know a greater responsibility and task filled with really 24-7 activity pretty much is being a mother. It's a very difficult task. I always enjoyed leaving the house and getting away <laughs> just to go to work. I didn't care if it was splitting rocks or whatever. But this lady, Susanna, by the way, she didn't live a pampered life with few responsibilities. She had quite a bit. Life was difficult for Susanna. Her husband was a preacher, but not a very successful one. In fact, he was very irresponsible, particularly with their finances, and constantly got them in debt. You know, one time so bad that he was put in debtor's prison that they had at that time, which obviously didn't help. It made things even worse. He had a bad temperament, particularly towards his wife, Often he things weren't going just right, he would take off and abandon them all. Susanna had a difficult life, just some highlights of it. She had 19 children. Nine of them died in infancy. One of them was crippled from birth. Another couldn't talk till he was sick. And another one had a child out of wedlock. She argued constantly with her husband about various disagreements, particularly with the children having no money and food much of the time. 
Her home, by the way, with all their possessions in it, didn't have insurance back then, but it burned down twice. They lost everything and had to rebuild. It was quite confusing and chaotic, as you could imagine. But she was committed to God and prayer, and prayer in particular for those of her responsibility, her children. So she creatively came up a way. She couldn't just go off to a desolate place. Instead, it is said of Susanna that what she would do was take her apron and put it over her head and instructed her children, when you see Mama with the apron over her head, she's not to be disturbed because she's trying to get alone with God and pray. Well, you may not know that much about Susanna, but you do know the answers to some of her prayers and her sons, John and Charles Wesley. You do not have time not to get alone and pray to God. And whatever confusion and chaos and circumstances that might surround you, at least this is a a good model for us in Christ in finding time on a regular basis to get alone to pray. This prayer that we have is a beautiful prayer for us to read and consider. A prayer that Christ prayed and prayed right before he would go to the cross. I outlined this prayer in John chapter 17 for you. The first part of it, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is essentially praying for himself. In 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples. And then in 20 through 26, those disciples that would follow. This morning, we're going to look at this first part again, what I've called the glory of Jesus. We'll begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let us pray. Father, I do pray as we have looked at this prayer of Jesus. I pray for your people that we would be enlightened to see the glory of Christ today. I pray in his name. Amen. Notice here in our text, the way it begins, by way of review, it says, now is the hour. The hour has come and do this, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. When you talk about glory, if you remember, that is simply another word similar to it would be beauty. This is the beauty in particular of the divine perfections of God. God is perfect in all that he does. And so here Christ is praying that the Father would glorify the Son. And the purpose in doing so was that he would reflect that glory back indeed to the Father. 
I've broken this text up, verses 1 through 5, in four sections. We did half of it last week. The first is the atonement, the second, the authority of Christ, the third, his accomplishment, and finally, his ascension. The atonement, I said, and notice in verse 1, he said, the hour has come. What is the hour? That is the hour of his death, his sacrifice, the atonement for sin. And the second aspect is found in verse 2, where he says, indeed, the Son has all authority. Remember in the giving of the Great Commission, we call it, in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, it begins that section with Jesus Christ saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Christ has authority. He has authority over all things. It may not seem like it at the moment, but I can assure you this, Jesus Christ is Lord. And our call to the masses is simply have them recognize and confess it in repentance rather than in judgment. Jesus Christ does have all authority. This morning, we're going to then look at what he has accomplished, beginning in verse 4, and then hopefully get to the ascension in verse 5 as this ends. Let's look at this first part, verse 4, and notice this in particular. Pay attention to the words. Here, Christ Jesus is in his prayer praying, I glorified you on earth. And how did Jesus glorify I accomplished the work, and note this phrase, what work? The work that you gave me to do. Underline that. It's the work the Father gives to Christ. We would call this, in our theological explanation, as the very decree of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains the decree this way in just easy terminology. It is God's eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. We can demonstrate that biblically. God has foreordained or decreed whatever is, will come to pass. Whatever occurs in time is decreed by God and the purpose for it is for his glory. That is for his glory to be displayed. Hence Christ is praying that very thing. Glorify me that I might glorify you. And here he says, I have glorified you in doing what? Accomplishing the work that you have given me to do or that you have decreed to do. The theologian W.T. Shedd in his Systematic Theology explains this in greater detail. The divine decree, he would say, is formed in eternity but executed in time. And that's key to understand. It is formed before the world began but it must take place in time. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says right here in this text, I've accomplished, executed, if you will, in time, 
That is why I was on earth. All that you have given me to do or decreed to be done. Shed goes on. There are sequences in the execution, but not the formation of God's eternal purpose. In his own mind and consciousness, God simultaneously, because eternally decrees all that occurs in space and time, but the effects and results corresponding to the decree occur successively, not simultaneously. In other words, God sees it all happening because he says, let there be, and there will be, but in time it does take time to unfold. Shed continues, there were 33 years between the actual incarnation and the actual crucifixion, right? Time. <clears throat> but not between the decree that the Logos should be incarnate and the decree that he should be crucified. In God's decree, it is done. In the divine decree, Christ was simultaneously because eternally incarnate and crucified. Note Revelation 14.8. John says this, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Right? He's going to be slain on Friday, the next day after this prayer, in time. But in accordance with the decree, it is accomplished, slain then, at the, uh, before the foundation of the world. Hence, Shed continues, divine decrees in reference to God are one single act only. The single number employed in scripture when the divine mind and nature are considered. This is why Paul could say, by the way, in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. This is God's purpose. He is purpose for it. What things? All things. Everything. Whatsoever comes to pass. Even the hard things. Even difficult things. And yes, even Jesus Christ suffering dying, being humiliated, spit on, rejected. It is all within the decree of God to accomplish his purpose. And here it is the purpose of the redemption, the saving of his people from their sin. All of this is according to his eternal purposes which he has determined in Christ the Lord. Ephesians 3.11 at this point in our text, in John 17, 4, Jesus is making a declaration that all that God has decreed, foreordained, determined to be done in relationship to the atonement for sin has been fulfilled. God determined it to be so before the world began. And now, in time... All that which has been decreed or determined is actually being accomplished. Now, don't be confused by this statement. There are still yet some things to occur in time, right? The cross is just hours away at this point. But everything is 
progressing according to God's divine time clock. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sin. And John chapter 19 finalizes this hour and this moment that is now as a bell being tolled. Jesus knows that all is finished, John 19, 28, and to fulfill Scripture, that is, how could Scripture be fulfilled? Because God determined that all of it would happen, revealed some of it to the prophets. The prophets then recorded it in Holy Scripture, and here you have it in time, acting out where Jesus says, to fulfill Holy Scripture, I thirst. And taking a jar of sour wine, he stood there and they put a sponge full of sour wine and hyssop branch and held it to his mouth, just as the prophets foretold. How could the prophets foretell that? Because God determines all that would take place in time. It is the very decree of God. And when Jesus Christ receives that, he says, it is finished. He bows his head and gives up his spirit. This is mission accomplished. Salvation, then, beloved, is a matter of divine accomplishment, fulfilling all the work that God had planned before the foundation of the world. It is now completed in time. It is indeed finished. This is God's work. He declares it as such. And what is the purpose of the declaration? That indeed he would be glorified. And hence the connection here when Jesus says, I've accomplished, glorify the Son, as I glorify you. Here, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I, I like this section because it is so compact. It contains this great truth packed up together to where it is readily accessible in just a few verses, and we'll look at a, a few it reflects the ideology that I'm trying to connect here to Christ saying, I've accomplished what you've given to me to do, this decree, this single act in the mind of God, this monergistic act of salvation. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, then God is to be blessed. God is to be praised. God is to be glorified. You can use Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he did what? Chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, there is a, even you sitting here, there is a time in which you will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, right? This is the time element aspect. But in God's mind, it's done. It is finished. It is completed. Oh, yes, will there have to be something to play out in time? Yes, in your mind, you'll have to recognize that I'm a sinner. And I need to repent. And I need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But from God's perspective, this is all done. 
And, and I hope if you get a glimpse of this by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that your response would be great blessing and praise to him, glory to him. And never cease but praise him for it, for coming up with this to begin with, chosen before the foundation of the world. I know some folks have a rough time with that idea. And they, and, they, and they spurn it and almost want to think of it in terms of, in, in, a, in a hateful way or anyone saying that kind of thing. The, the point of all of this is to give glory and praise to God and God alone. Yes, you must choose Christ. Yes, you must believe and call people to repent and believe. And when they truly do, then they recognize the reason they did that very thing is that from the foundation of the world, God said, I'll have that one. Demonstrates also, as he'll unpack, we'll not spend the time to get there, but at the very end of this section, it talks about being then sealed by the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. Of course, because in God's mind, it's, it's complete. It's finished. And this is why no one who is truly confesses Jesus Christ as Lord will ever deny the faith. They can't, right? Because God has chosen them. It does unfold in time. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, verse 4, that we should be holy, blameless before him in love. And, and I say these three, by the way, are three aspects of the, the result of his choosing, if you will. The holy just means to be set apart, sanctified, if you will, Blameless, that is made perfectly right before him. We know how. It is in Jesus Christ and only in him, right? That has how, verse, what, three, that is how he blessed us. It is not in our own selves, but in Christ that we have been made holy, that we have been made blameless. And then, and some folks struggle where to put this in love. I say it goes with this first part. And that is, that is the state of those that are in Christ. They are loved. They are beloved, if you will. That is the state of a believer. Because that's the state of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is holy. Jesus Christ is blameless. Jesus Christ is beloved by the Father. And if you're in him, those aspects apply to you. That's what he's saying. He predestined then for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. It is only through Christ that you'll be holy, blameless, and love. It is through Christ he has predestined. That means he had planned this ahead of time. And for what purposes? The purposes of his own will and what it, what are the purposes of God? It says it right there in the text of verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he had blessed us in the beloved. And that's how we should respond to the praise of his glorious grace. 
It is in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In that section here in chapter 1, it repeats this phrase, to the praise of the glory of his grace, the praise of his glorious grace, the praise of his glorious grace. Salvation then is a demonstration of the glorious grace of God. It is his blessing, a blessing that has been decreed by the Father and in time, chapter 17, is accomplished by the Son. Later on in the text, we'll learn that this is then indeed applied by the Holy Spirit. It is a triune work of God functioning each member in a different aspect, functionally all accomplishing the one thing, and that is the glory of God. God is glorified in the accomplishment of Jesus Christ in all that God has determined to do, All that he has determined to do is now being fulfilled in time and therefore gives him glory. All that is being accomplished has been promised, as I mentioned, by the prophets in time. And now it's being realized and thus the Son is glorifying the Father. In what ways? I can think of just a few off the top of my head. God is glorified in the fact that he is demonstrated to be true. All that he has said is being accomplished by Jesus Christ. God is glorified in the sense that he is trustworthy, fulfilling his promises and his covenant, all that has gone before. And God is absolutely just. The sin will be atoned for. The wages of sin is indeed death. And Christ will accomplish the atonement through taking our sin on his body on the tree. God is indeed just. There won't be just some folks that just get away with it, scot-free. No. Every sin will be paid for either by your own eternal payment in judgment or through the judgment on Jesus Christ. But God will be just in all of that. No one will will get away with anything. Plenty of people get away with stuff in this life. But in eternity, no, they will not. God will be praised. God will be praised when I look at this too is the absolute wisdom of, of accomplishing all of this that's done. I couldn't come up with a way like this. In fact, most people can't come up with a way, well, I'd say all, can't come up with a way that's any different and that's why they struggle with this whole concept because they would come up with a better way, a more fair way. Right. Yeah, just throw out an opportunity to people to to come to Christ and get saved on their own and make good choices. That's the plan of salvation most people would come up with. And if you did that, you know how many people would get saved? Zero. That's what would happen. I remember a story about Jerry Clowers used to talk about giving raccoons a fair chance, sporting chance. They would apparently run a coon up in the tree and be out there with a bunch of dogs and shotguns. And rather than shoot up in the tree once the coon was treed and bag their prey, 
they would shake the limbs and let the coon fall down because he said, well, that coon could whip all them dogs and go free. (laughs) It would never happen. You would never repent and turn to Christ if he didn't change your heart, if he didn't give your blind eyes sight, your deaf ears hearing, your dead heart life. It is the work of his grace to accomplish this, and Christ accomplishes it all in absolute wisdom. And God is faithful, and that is demonstrated there. God is omniscient. He knows all that is going to take place, and he's omnipotent in that he will powerfully accomplish what he has determined to do. In the end, it is glory. I stand in amazement and awe when I'm reminded of these things. Back to our text in verse 4. Jesus says, note here the term of accomplishment. He's glorified all you gave me to do. That is in the decree. And where was it done? And that is, it is done on earth. Jesus volunteers then to take on flesh. The sovereign takes on the form of a servant to accomplish all that the Father has decreed from the beginning. He will primarily accomplish this by fulfilling the work that God has given him to do. Now, just for time's sake, I'm going to just read out for you. You don't have to follow along. You can. But just from John, an example. In Christ actually fulfilling out this on earth, John 4.34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent to me and to accomplish his work. In 5.30 of John, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 5.36, the testimony I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And 6.38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The rejection then of Jesus Christ and his work is the rejection of the Father who has commissioned him in that sense to do this work. That's why Jesus would say in 5.23, whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Whoever hates me, John 15.23, hates my Father also. There is an inseparable union then within the Godhead. You cannot have one without the other. In our text, it's, it's Jesus who is sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, to accomplish his work. And what is this work that he did on earth that he is recognizing that he accomplished? It is all of the glory of God in Christ Jesus displayed on earth. What does that look like? Well, how about the humility in his incarnation, born 
an infant in Bethlehem, that aspect demonstrated in great humility. His patience as he increases in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man as a child, waiting 33 years, or 30 years at least, before that's on display. On earth, he demonstrates through the glory of God on earth in accomplishing great teaching. In our text, we've already gone through where even his opponents said, no one has ever taught like him. He goes to the temple and explains a text of scripture, and they can't understand it. Where did this one get that kind of insight? If you read the text of scripture and the comments that Jesus makes about all these things that, to which he is asked, they are profound in his statements. On earth, he demonstrated many signs and miracles that were unprecedented and never matched by anyone to the degree that Jesus Christ did it. Oh, his followers did do some, but not to the degree that Jesus Christ did. He, you understand when Jesus on earth, he was healing everyone. No wonder throngs of people came to him. It, was, it wasn't much for him just to take a few scraps of food and feed thousands and thousands of people. No one's ever done anything like Christ. No wonder even one of his op- opponents, Nicodemus, would come to him and said, no one can do these kinds of things unless God is with him. This is what Christ did. He lived a, on earth a sinless life. And I know we know that intellectually. We know about that theologically. But can you imagine someone actually living all the way to adulthood with no sin? No bad attitude, right? No no anger that isn't justified, only righteous anger. No corrupt word coming out of the mouth. No actions, and this is foreign in many respects. And so much so that he could even ask his opponents, does anyone have a charge against me? You know what they charged him against, finally was able to do? Well, he said he's God. (laughs) Let's see, you did things that no one else could do, you said things that no one else would say. Um, Yeah, I think he demonstrated indeed that that was true, and they were wrong. He demonstrated a patient and controlled and yet wrath, a righteous wrath in cleansing the temple at least two times that we know of. May have done it more. He rebuked the Sadducees and the the Pharisees in, in ways that were right to challenge them. He demonstrated on earth his great submission like a lamb led before a slaughter. He could have called a myriad of angels. Angels, by the way, are not an effeminate character that's portrayed in, on t- television. An angel, you can think of them as a great, fierce warrior, a destroyer. And I could imagine in the heavenlies, if you will, angelic beings, by the way, who we're, we're told in Scripture, Scripture's not about angels, but they are said to peer in on 
the gospel even now because this is so glorious for them to hear about that they want to indeed hear about it. But I could imagine as Jesus now, chapter 17, he's going to go to the cross and at any moment these angels, great warriors, are willing to come and put an end to all flesh. They will in the final judgment. There is an assistance with the word of Christ. But at this point in time, Jesus Christ in great submission. Submission to the Father's will to do this very thing in verse 4, accomplish all that he has given him to do. And Christ is glorious. Well, our final point here is in verse 5. Jesus Christ accomplishes all the Father does. He's glorified. It glorifies the Father. But now, notice verse 5 in chapter 17. He's calling for the Father then to glorify him. Glorify me in your own presence. Okay? This is talking about the ascension when he will be reunited in that sense with the Father. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's looking back to eternity past and the state in which Christ had in his glorious state. He prays to the Father to restore this. And as I look at it, and I don't know about you, but I would suggest that this aspect this ascension of Christ to the Father, the restoration of his glory, is perhaps one of the more overlooked aspects of this hour. And maybe it shouldn't be. And so I want to take some time and draw your attention to this and why this would be important for you to think about as you worship Christ this day. If you remember, Jesus Christ volunteered to descend from above and come to earth below, if you will. His mission is the atonement, saving his people from their sin. Once that is accomplished, then we have what's going on here. He's going to be restored to his prior glory. Now, when Jesus took on human flesh... He did so in, in condescending in this way. He looked like an ordinary person. Listen to the prophet Isaiah explain. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. These Renaissance pictures of Jesus with a halo around his head miss the mark. In fact, I'm kind of glad, and I understand in God's wisdom why he would do it, not to um, do, uh, have this incarnation at a time in which um, there weren't any photographs, because if there were, there'd be all kinds of shrines and stuff that people would build. Oh, all kinds of idolatry. And yeah, I think he said something about not making an image of him. So if you have a picture on Jesus on your wall, 
It's not him. Um, I personally don't care for him. I'm not going to make a big fuss about that. But nevertheless, as long as you recognize that's not who he is. He didn't have a halo over his head. There was no way, if you were to look at him, taking on human flesh, that externally, in that regard, that he would look like the Son of uh, God. He took on a true human form, and from a human perspective, he would look very normal. I think I already highlighted, mentioned, this Luke's account of his early childhood. You can find it in Luke 2.52. I'll just read it for you. Speaking of Jesus... After his birth, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's, just ta- that's a phraseology just to talk about how kids normally grow up. You know, they, they start out and they, they develop from their human perspective, even their human spirit, their personality and all of that. Jesus would have looked very normal. And in fact, when you read the text you find of Scripture, you find that he, he does. He gets tired. He sleeps. He's hungry. He's thirsty. Jesus Christ, in his condensation to earth, actually takes on a real human nature. God walking in your shoes. You know, I've heard that phrase before. Well, you don't know what it's like to walk in my shoes. Can I tell you someone who does? Yeah. And don't take my word for it. How about the preacher from Hebrews chapter 4? We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ went to the full extreme and never broke. That's the difference. You and I go, oh, maybe 10%. Maybe we get stronger. We go 20, 30, 40, whatever it is. At some point, we break. He never broke. So he gets 100% of the temptation in the wilderness for the devil, and he never breaks. Guess what? You're somewhere on that continuum. None of you are at 100%. Right? He knows. He, he is able to sympathize.